previously on Under Review. Because Black Lives Matter at Harvard, too. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Studying the problem can lead to what Martin Luther King called the paralysis of analysis. We say, tell us, community, tell us what you think safety looks like or what makes you feel safe. What we want to do is to get at this idea that police are what make us safe, that the reason that you should feel safe on Harvard's campus is because there are officers walking around with guns. We're standing in front of 1033 Mass Ave, a tall, square, concrete building that's almost brutalist in design. Its facade is a grid with big rectangular windows like a parking garage, and the windows look tinted from afar, but up close they're just really, really dirty. We're in front and sniffing the chemical aroma of a Domino's pizza, but we're interested in the glass door next to Domino's, and in the offices behind the grimy windows on the sixth floor of this parking garage-esque structure. Doors and windows that not many Harvard students have seen the other side of. A sign on the glass door reads, Harvard University Police, 6th floor. I'm Mateo Wong. And I'm Olivia Oldham. This is the second part in the two-episode finale of Under Review, a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Crimson's weekly magazine, in which we investigate what we're calling the Harvard Diversity Review. Over the past four episodes, we've explored how this university responds to issues of race, racism, and diversity primarily with task forces and committees, which then issue diversity reviews and reports. The pattern stretches back to the 1970s, when Harvard first had appreciable numbers of students of color, and has continued in Harvard's sweeping statements and reviews about diversity in the past three years. In our final episode, we're subjecting those sweeping task forces to a specific test. Enormous debates over policing and racism at Harvard, sparked by the sighting of Harvard University Police Department officers at a Black Lives Matter rally in June 2020. Even closer to home, we know about the Harvard police being called in as reinforcements to intimidate protesters in Boston who filled the streets to demand justice for Breonna Taylor, Tony McDay, and George Floyd. We'd love to go behind the grimy windows of the sixth floor of 1033 Mass Ave into the inner workings of the HEPD, but we can't, so we're doing the next best thing exploring the efforts of two groups to systematically review the HEPD. One group was a consulting firm hired by the university called 21CP Solutions, short for 21st Century Policing Solutions. The other group is a coalition of abolitionist students and activists called the Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops, or HACC. Both reviews began after the sighting of Harvard police at the BLM rally last June and both published their reports in December of 2020. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, we'd recommend doing so and then coming back. As a quick recap, last episode, we looked at differences, but also surprising similarities between the 21CP and HACK reports. 21CP Solutions and HACK agreed that the current model of HUPD policing doesn't work, and that the Harvard police take on a lot of responsibilities you just don't need armed officers for. Hack, a group of abolitionists, doesn't think that policing is broken per se. They see Harvard police harassing black, brown, and unhomed people as exactly what policing, as a manifestation of structural racism, is intended to do. So they call for defunding and abolishing. Meanwhile, the university hired consultants of 21CP recommended, in Pillar 1 of the review, 
the central pillar that Harvard engaged in a community-wide process to reimagine public safety, which to many just sounds like another review. And so we're left with the question, how do we make sure that community-driven process leads to a tangible change? As undergraduate Carter Nakamoto told us last time, the university has a penchant for, um, you know, ordering reports, for conducting surveys, and then basically um, filing those results away, holding a few listening sessions, perhaps, with students, um, and then not making material changes in response to their findings. And Brenda Bond, one of the 21 CP Solutions reviewers, said, The university community will have to figure out how they hold the university leadership accountable for making something happen. I know that sounds maybe a little bit like the party line, but that's who else will do that if the university community doesn't do that? In many ways, the Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops seek to do just that, to force the university's hand to rapidly reimagine or for hack, illuminate policing. They are not satisfied with a slow, bigger conversation over public safety, because they have an answer. To their credit, 21CP Solutions, in their report, acknowledged Harvard's tendency to delay and study. So the 21CP report has a second section, titled Pillar 2, in which they recommend five areas in which the university should make short-term changes to the HUPD in a two-year window. And that second pillar suggests urgency. It's hard to compare the specific and immediate demands of HACC with the very broad and capacious recommendations from 21CP to reimagine public safety. We just have no clue what such a reimagining will lead to. But we can compare HACC's demands with 21CP's Pillar 2, those short-term reforms. So in this episode, we attempt a final accounting. What are HACC's precise, immediate demands of the university? What are 21CP's short-term recommendations? If we scry into the past, at Harvard's oft-forgotten but incredibly long history. Have any of these been tried before? How do Hack's demands, or 21CP's second pillar, fit into a broad reimagining of public safety and policing? The central demand of the Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops, as the name suggests, is defunding the Harvard police. This is Joan Steffen, a law school student who worked on the Hack Report, who we heard from last time. So our first demand is to defund um, HUPD. We want a budget cut of at least 80%. Um, I guess in terms of comparing to the 21CP report, um, there's no mention of, of funding that I notice in terms of cutting funding to HUPD. So even though there's sort of these, these like suggestions that maybe services could be shifted to other, other um, institutions or other university resources, um, there's not necessarily this demand that har- that the police department's budget be cut <laughs> to reflect that, um, and that's concerning because I've seen you know so a lot of my work I mentioned is in is in um, sort of prison abolition and Massachusetts has one of the lowest prison populations per capita but one of the highest spending rates, um, and I think we've seen the same problem with police departments across the country where you know rates of community harm that's defined as crime are falling but police budgets are going up and up and up. So I think that's something that we wanted to really explicitly have in our report is is cutting this funding. The closest 21CP's second pillar of two-year solutions gets to defunding, well, it doesn't. To defund HUPD is so drastic that it seems 21CP would only want that if the community process to reimagine public safety from pillar one concluded that defunding is what the Harvard community wants. 
as Bond, the 21CP reviewer, told us about defunding. That's a conversation that the university community needs to have. We can't prescribe the best solution. What we can do is say, here are some things that you should really be thinking about and talking about. And, and obviously you'll see that in our recommendation to have broader community conversations about how to define and operationalize community safety and well-being. The second hack demand we mentioned last episode, which is to end mutual aid agreements with municipal police, which are basically these agreements that let the Cambridge and Boston police call on HUPD for assistance, what led to Harvard bicycle patrol officers at that Black Lives Matter rally in June. Meanwhile, 21CP calls for updating those agreements to reflect university values, which doesn't really mean anything concrete and it sounds a little bit like another review, which maybe is the point. Hack's next two demands are to disarm the Harvard police and to disclose all HUPD records. That is, full transparency. Our next demand is to disarm HUPD. I think that that just gets to like the power that they have as a police department and, and the threat that they pose to students, the threat of violence from, from them as police officers. Um, there's, I think, almost no reason that a Harvard police officer should be armed during, while patrolling campus, while sitting in the dining hall, etc. Um, it's just completely ridiculous. Although 21CP doesn't explicitly write, disarm the HEPD, the report remarks that armed officers in student dining halls is, quote, an example of HUPD engagement efforts being identified not only as failing to further positive community relationships, but as harmful and damaging to the HUPD community dynamic. Maybe it's not unreasonable to think that 21CP's temporary recommendation, 2.2.1, updating the HUPD policies and guidelines manual, could encompass something at least relevant to disarming police in certain contexts. Or maybe that is unreasonable. Updating policies could be as trivial as modified guidelines for student interactions. 21CP solutions in response to requests for comment referred us back to several parts of their review. HUPD spokesperson Stephen Catalano again declined to comment, and the university spokespeople have declined to comment on the record throughout our reporting. Back to Joan from Hack. The next request is to um, disclose um, the record, so for more transparency, um, this is something that was also called for in the 21CP report, but without, I think I said before, you know, there's not really like a clear definition in that report of what exactly should be made publicly available. And we can recall how, in order to write their report, Hag really came up against the black box of HEPD. We want to metaphorically get behind the windows of HEPD headquarters, but in the middle of a pandemic, members like Amanda Chan did not want to have to actually go there to access HEPD records, except they did. I mean, this was right in the middle of COVID, and it would have been really ridiculous for people to have to risk their lives and well-being and risk the spread of a very new, contagious, and deadly disease. Um, but that's what he insisted on us doing. The HUPD spokesperson, Stephen Catalano, required hack members to come in person to the HUPD headquarters because he said the records could only be accessed physically. In theory, hack members should agree with the 21CP report on this idea of increased transparency. 21CP devotes an entire one of the five areas of short-term changes to transparency and data sharing of the Harvard police. But to Joan, measures in 21CP's report, 
like a dashboard with aggregate stats or more public data on HUPD calls for service, fall short. I think that both the 21CP report calls for this, and then Katie Lapp in her interview says that they're um, going to be setting up an HUPD dashboard with sort of data about how HUPD is spending its time, what are the incident reports, and, and then some information about internal reviews or internal complaints. Um, that aggregate data to us, again, is not enough. Like I said before, it's hard to get a sense of how legitimate these reports are and how, what sort of um, utility they're really serving or not serving to our community with that sort of um, aggregate level data. I will say the 21CP's report, although it doesn't provide details on the exact ways HUPD should be transparent or what the dashboard should look like, does stress the importance of being timely and specific in the info and data that HUPD shares. We know that as of the end of March, Harvard has formed a 13-person committee to consider these short-term changes and that they've started meeting. In an interview with the Harvard Gazette, interim Harvard Police Chief Dennis Downing said the dashboard would come out in a couple of months. Which is promising, but also feels like such a bare minimum. The university is exposing the problem at best, but going from a dashboard to policy changes is much harder, especially if it's true, as Joan thinks, that the more general statistics likely to be made publicly available won't be all that useful. Like we heard a couple of episodes ago, when we talked to experts in diversity in higher education, like Daryl Smith and Francis Frey, identifying the problem, even exposing the problem, cannot be allowed to substitute for solving the problem. On the other hand, we might recall how Noah Harris, the president of the Undergraduate Council, which is Harvard's student government, said that in focus groups with 21CP, since there's so little transparency about the HUPD, he wasn't able to provide much specific feedback. So it's kind of hard for us to, to recommend change other than, you know, like I said, more transparency, uh, these very um, surface level things. And it's sad we haven't been able to move past this. And so maybe we can finally get beyond that. Maybe at least some data sharing from the HUPD means students, if they want to hold Harvard accountable, don't need to embark on a months-long, possibly life-threatening journey like Joan and Amanda and the Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops did. Although there is that controversy from the end of this past March, in which a postdoc in the math department said HUPD officers questioned and detained him, telling him he was not free to go, but then described the interaction on the HUPD call log as a, quote, field interview, which to him seemed pretty inaccurate, although HUPD spokesperson Stephen Catalano defended the term on technical grounds. So even when data is reported, when HUPD supposedly adheres to transparency regulations like the Clery Act that requires these call logs to be made public, transparency feels inadequate. Right, like no matter how much we think we know, A, there are unknown unknowns, things we don't know we should be looking for, and B, knowledge isn't the same as action. Which I guess is part of why Hack makes so many specific and possibly ground-shaking demands, some of which go way outside the bounds of 21CP's report. Um, our next demand is to redistribute the HUPD budget to community members. Um, so to, to redistribute that money to members of the, of the Harvard community and to um, members of the unhoused community. Uh, we're also calling to open the gates to Harvard Yard. We think that's really fundamental. Like I, I think I've talked a lot on this, in this conversation about um, how one of the major problems with how HUPD currently functions is sort of determining who belongs and who doesn't, placing the boundaries of our campus. Um, just shifting that role to someone else, like Securitas, is not going to solve that problem. Um, it's just going to change the, the form that it takes. 
Um, so we think it's important to just make our public spaces available to all um, and sort of stop <laughs> this whole idea of policing boundaries and um, just trying to make a determination of, of who is or isn't um, allowed to exist in, in our space. So these two recommendations, redistributing the budget and opening the gates, are about what Hack and their analysis saw as, to use Joan's term from the last episode, the HEPD's, quote, terrorizing of the Cambridge community. I spoke to Hannah O'Halloran, who is the emergency shelter services manager at the Somerville Homeless Coalition. She relayed this story that an unhoused community member who often sleeps in Harvard Square told her. Um, One specific thing that this individual pointed out to me, he called it, um, I think he called it the receipt rule. And I asked him to elaborate and he said that if you are homeless and you're riding around Harvard, you need to have a receipt for the bike that you're on because a Harvard police officer will stop you and ask you um, for a receipt. And if you don't have it, then they will um, possibly arrest you for um, the bike not being yours. Hacks is a vision expanding way beyond Harvard. To make all space public is to tackle the foundations of private property and the property of whiteness that their abolitionist vision works against. 21CP Solutions does write two paragraphs about Harvard police and surrounding communities, their very last recommendation, which is to develop, quote, tangible initiatives aimed at responses to external visitors or members of the surrounding community. Which is at least hopeful. It might mean no more profiling of black people in the Smith Center, for instance but it's very different from Hack's radical demand to open the gates. Even the language of 21CP's, quote, external visitors or surrounding community still implies an inside and outside of Harvard, that the HUPD should tolerate the external world, but not necessarily that we should radically change what we consider it within or outside. It strikes me that Hack's vision in these demands, like opening the gates or redistributing HUPD funds, those get at the quote-unquote core processes, to use Daryl Smith's term from our third episode. They involve fundamental changes to Harvard as an institution. And Hack's final recommendation is also at the core, in which they suggest alternatives to the HUPD, including civilian response initiatives. Because as we've mentioned in previous episodes, abolition is not just about defunding, but also building something new. Um, the last thing we call for you is sort of these uh, civilian response initiatives. Um, we want Harvard to, to do more research about these and, and implementing them. Some of the recommendations include expanding the student-run EMS service so police would never respond to medical emergencies, creating non-police safety escorts, and property insurance. That last idea, stolen property insurance, comes from statistics on HEPD's website that 95% of crime on campus is property crime, and that from Hack's research that HEPD has a low success rate on resolving those. These recommendations aren't out of line with a lot of what 21CP recommends, but they tend to go a few steps further in terms of specificity, like hack referencing other schools and cities with what they think are good models and focusing more on eliminating any police involvement. We specifically call for in-house residential therapists in, in the dorms to, to be those first responders uh, in those situations. I think I think the, the in terms of what the university implements in that area, like the recommendations in the 21CC report, it's a little bit vague, it's not clear if that person would be linked to say, like the, the Harvard disciplinary 
process or, or what their sort of reporting obligations would be, et cetera. Yeah, we're specifically calling for in-house residential therapists for those problems. We're also calling one area that 21CP didn't talk about, a, a form of harm in our community that the police are particularly ill-suited to, to address is um, sexual assault on campus. Um, so we specifically call for a sexual assault non-mandatory reporting hotline and um, the creation of a discrete intervener's team to um, not just for sexual assault, but to be able to um, appear and intervene in situations uh, that require de-escalation or um, removing someone to safety while sort of alleviating the threat of punishment for legal activities or retaliation. We also want a student-run EMS service. One CP also called for um, having medical responders only for these issues, um, but they didn't really lay out specifics. The consistent theme seems to be that, for the Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops, the 21CP solution's pillar two of short-term changes just doesn't go far enough. That these changes are what abolitionists call reformist, not shrinking the criminal justice system, but tinkering with it. Recommendation 2.5.3 is that Hubsy should consider how it might integrate existing campus community resources into its current deployment and response approaches. And they give um, CAMS and Securitas as examples. And um, that is uh, absolutely the wrong focus in terms of trying to make HUPD more connected to these groups that are, are responding, right? That's like an anti-abolitionist approach, right? That's expanding the scope of Hubsy. And this tinkering is something Cornell Brooks, an HKS professor and former head of the NAACP, we've heard from a few times on this podcast, noted as one problem with trying to reform police in the past. This notion that we can fix policing with technocratic solutions. If we have more training, more tools, more data, we can turn policing around. That's not true in and of itself or by itself. I want to suggest to you that we've tried this in a variety of contexts and have failed. There's somewhat of a tension in 21CP's solutions report between the technocratic reform in Pillar 2 and the broad reimagining of public safety in Pillar 1. Pillar 2 is not reimagining HEPD, but tinkering with its current form and in some ways enhancing it, while Pillar 1 offers the opportunity to start with a clean slate. But that broader Pillar 1 of 21CP, which is literally a structural reimagining, Seems so, as Joan put it in the last episode, open-ended and, and aspirational. And Joan simultaneously saw hope in this broader reimagining process 21CP recommended, but also worried such a reimagining is so open-ended that it implies more and more reviews that might take a long time. And so Hack demands the reimagining of public safety at Harvard also, but in a specific way. All right, but if we think about how Hack's demands to defund, disarm, open the gates, also entail reimagining the meaning of public safety. Those are concrete demands, yes, not open-ended, but they might be just as aspirational of 21CP's vision to reimagine public safety. I just don't see the university anytime soon defunding its police department by 100%, or 80%, or even 40%. And so we're pointing out this tension between small reforms to HUPD and bigger structural changes to how we define safety and property. But for Bond from 21CP, there was no tension. It's about thinking in the short term and the long term. The reality is that right now you and Harvard University have a police department. And the university needs to decide whether or not they want to address some of the 
identified challenges or weaknesses in the existing unit. If they don't do anything about any of those things right now, but they literally jump right into and invest heavily in pillar one, then those those issues are still existing and remaining. So they're not fixing those things. So is that something that the university wants to do? Right. And so and I can't, I'm not going to answer that question because the reality is you have a unit. And if you decide that you're keeping that unit right now, while you're trying to engage in and facilitate this reimagining process, what are the kinds of things that you could do with that unit right now? To that end, Noah Harris, the UC president, unlike members of HACC, liked the second pillar more than the first pillar, because to him, that first pillar was too broad. It didn't do anything. I think the better part is probably the the second pillar that kind of gets at what HUPD could be doing better. I kind of wish the maybe the report spent more time on that. Noah is on this 13-person committee that started meeting at the end of March to consider implementing some of the short-term and other changes to HUPD that we mentioned earlier. In his interview with the Gazette, HUPD Chief Downing said, we continue to have a shared conversation with community members and with advice from 21CP Solutions on what types of calls the HUPD should respond to and how this could change from what we've been doing up until now, end quote. And that sounds pretty promising in terms of reimagining or shrinking the HUPD's role. I guess part of the concern about Pillar 2 and short-term reforms is if these small and seemingly technocratic solutions, like updating guidelines and diversity trainings and diverse hiring practices, that the 21CP short-term changes consist of seem reformist and cautious, is there much hope that this big reimagining public safety process will go further? Here's Bond again. Well, I don't have all the answers, um, but I'm very comfortable with that because we all have very different experiences and different ways of thinking about it. And this is where we get the good answers. Well, here's one answer that's being floated. In that interview with the Harvard Gazette, interim HUPD chief Downing also said he wants HUPD officers to get to know the students better, to be more closely connected with the Harvard community, which is explicitly anti-abolitionist. If we accept these technocratic changes as stopgap measures, maybe that closes off our imaginations to the possibility of abolition, or limits other ways we might redefine safety and well-being in the long term. Instead, we might end up studying and reviewing and getting mired in improving the current system. Brooks also speaks to this. The study of the problem can in some ways reinforce the problem. Meaning when we study the problem and the, and the study leads to a call for more resources, more tools, more financial resources. So maybe the system's been broken for so long that we need something big, unprecedented, to shake it up right now. And a lot of HACC's recommendations, like expanding student-run EMS, both don't call for more policing resources and might be feasible in the short term. The abolitionist group's mindset of urgently needing radical change might be the difference between HACC and 21CP. The Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops, in fact, did a very thorough review of the history of Harvard Police and the history of what they see as failed attempts to reform the HUPD, a history that heavily informed the shape, tone, and urgency of their demands to abolish the police. 
Um, I think the historical review is also really important um, and is, is gives us more insight, honestly, than, than some of 21CP's findings. Um, for example, some of their recommendations are things that have been tried in the past and have failed. The yard police were established sometime in the 1890s, and by 1913, a few officers were employed by the university, working out of the basement of Thayer. The Harvard, the original members of the Harvard police force were, were formed as like a yard patrol to patrol Harvard Yard, and um, again, doing that, that same exact function of um, determining who belongs and who doesn't, and who can be present in that space and who can't. The way that Jones sees it, the history of the Harvard University Police Department can be split into three themes. The first theme, to use the language of hack, is how HUPD has historically protected property, in part by regulating who can and cannot be on campus. We heard Joan describe this last time. This idea that whiteness is, is this form of privilege and entitlement that, that functions um, almost like like a property entitlement. And we see that sort of really clearly manifested in terms of like access to these physical spaces um, of Harvard Yard. And taking that sort of from the abstract to the tangible, you know, when, when we have this armed police force who's tasked with sort of trying to make this determination of who belongs and who doesn't. The Hack Report found that in the 1920s, HUPD officers began writing parking tickets and towing cars. HUPD caught a lot of flack for this because it wasn't clear whether they even had the power to do so. Meanwhile, as a recent 15-minute staff writer, Simon J. Levine, explored in his piece, The Crimson Clan, students were parading through the yard wearing Ku Klux Klan paraphernalia. That's horrible. It makes you think that those donning KKK robes, quote-unquote, belong to the campus. And at the same time, HUPD devotes its energies towards parking tickets. And we see this tendency repeat itself of the HUPD policing the boundaries of who is or isn't a member of the Harvard community, and assuming those who aren't members are threats. One really interesting story that I had knew nothing about was about um, a group, a collective of women in 1971 who occupied a Harvard building uh, for 10 days and turned it into uh, the Liberated Women's Center, um, where they were demanding affordable housing for the predominantly black um, Riverside community in Cambridge. Um, that is really, really cool and something I never knew about. The Liberated Women's Center released a set of demands in their occupation of the building, including to turn the building into housing for lower-income Cambridge residents, and demanded that Harvard develop a women's center. A few days later, the group caught wind that HUPD was going to raid the building, and fled. Though the threat ended up being empty, HUPD showed up in smaller numbers than expected, the women's center was no more. In the Crimson the next day, the HEPD police chief said if there had been a bust, it would have been the Cambridge police with our insistence on the outside. And I think that it has sort of been like echoed over the years and sort of the effect that Harvard has had on, on the larger Cambridge community. There's an incident, um, for example, in the 80s where Harvard, the Harvard Police Department arrested eight black youths and held them without allowing them to call their parents. Um, and that was, of course, um, challenged by the, the Cambridge community and, and the outcome of that, the, the um, investigation into Hufti was dismissed. HUPD has played a big part in policing the local community since as early as 1971, if not later. Since Harvard is in the middle of Cambridge, policing Harvard has also meant policing Cambridge spaces and residents, whether it means involving themselves in this building occupation, which demanded for low-income housing, 
or by arresting young black people in the community in the 80s. The boundaries of Harvard aren't clearly marked by its gates, it seems, at least when it comes to policing. And that policing of boundaries sometimes turns against Harvard's own students. I'm thinking of an incident in 2007 that started the I Am Harvard protest, the same protest that spawned the I Too Am Harvard play in 2014, which spawned the Harvard College Working Group. I Am Harvard was defined by a question of who belongs at Harvard campus and how HUPD mediates that. In 2007, Brian was the president of the Black Men's Forum. And uh, there was somewhat of a tradition that we would affectionately known as Abwa. So uh, during reading period, we would do a, a field day. And this was, you know, a couple of hours that we would spend together, donned in our BMF and Abwa paraphernalia, you know, t-shirts, and we would uh, take a moment uh, to have a, an aside from the rigors of reading period to, you know, innocently uh, have a day of relay races. The group had gotten permission to host the event on the quad. I jumped through all the bureaucratic hoops. Yet, in the middle of the activities, a member of the Black Men's Forum called Brian and told him that a heated email debate was going on on the Cabot House mailing list. And it was initiated by an individual who said that there were some strange people uh, on, uh, you know, that the person said, our lawn, uh, creating a disruption. And, you know, mind you, I lived in the quad, uh, but shortly after that call, a police officer came up on a motorcycle, and I believe my uh, social secretary talked to the officer and, um, you know, just informed the officer that we were Harvard students. I think the officer could tell that we were just based upon our T-shirts, and um, the officer left. So there was, there was no issue with the officer uh, whatsoever. And, you know, the thing that was um, annoying and uh, frustrating for us was that just a day prior, there was an impromptu gathering of uh, students who also lived in the quad um, who were all white. So even though the incident didn't escalate with the HUPD officer, there was this element of them being in charge of evaluating who does and does not belong. And we see this play out today in the findings of the report of the Harvard Alliance Against Campus Cops, or highly visible incidents of HUPD harassing unhoused people in the Smith Center, or the 2019 incident we mentioned last episode, where HUPD officers responded to complaints about the art project in the performing Latinidad class all of which has boiled over into massive protests of late. To that point, the second theme Joan noted was how HEBD has historically interacted with student activism, particularly from students on the left of the political spectrum. One of the big, big themes that came out was this sort of response to, how do you respond to student activism on campus or student political organizing, um, and sort of who they saw as worthy of a 
police presence and who they didn't and who was who, who they re- reacted to with violence and who they collaborated and cooperated with. I and probably many others hear this and immediately think of the University Hall occupations of the late 60s and early 70s against the Vietnam War or South African apartheid. Famously, in 1969, hundreds of people were arrested for protesting the Vietnam War in a bloody clash. But the instances of student activism butting heads with HEPD is so prevalent throughout the 20th century, from arresting anti-Nazi protesters in 1934, to closing down a John Reed Club meeting during the 1950s Red Scare, to shutting down the aforementioned Liberated Women's Center in 1971. Student activism, it seems to me, is tied up to accountability. Members of Hack described how difficult it was to get access to HUPD police logs so that they could create the report. If students don't have access to HUPD archives, they can't begin to critique it and act against it. Another instance of this back in 2004 demonstrates the opacity of the HUPD. When I spent a lot of my time as an undergrad working on the Crimson and trying to get uh, information to the Harvard community and to the general public that I and, and others on the Crimson thought was really important for the public to know about. And that, that intersected with a couple different issues that related to uh, access and Harvard trying to keep records secret. This is Ahmed R. Paley, class of 2004, who served as the Crimson president and is currently on the Crimson's Graduate Council Executive Committee. Ahmed is well attuned to what he has called a culture of secrecy around Harvard's internal workings and discrimination at the university, both past and present. In 2002, Ahmed wrote a groundbreaking article for the Crimson's 15 Minutes magazine about the Harvard Secret Court of 1924, a secret tribunal held by five Harvard administrators to investigate same-sex attraction on campus, and Ahmed's article was cited in the Supreme Court case Lawrence v. Texas. A year later, in 2003, Ahmed and the Crimson wanted to access HUPD crime records that could have contained important information about allegations of race and sex discrimination by Harvard police officers, but the university said no. And so that summer, the Crimson sued on the grounds that Massachusetts law would have required a municipal police force to make those records public. And then I think when it comes to the the police, I just think to, to me it is such a it is so clear that when that when that when people have the ability to deprive people of their liberty, of their physical safety, to to imprison people, to use force against people, that is an incredible power that is given and that society, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has decided to give that power to Harvard University police officers. There were two forms of, of, of state police power that were given to the Harvard University Police Department. I believe that they were given some types of power as, as sheriffs and they were given some types of power by, I think it might've been the superintendent of police. The HUPD have been granted power similar to that of local police departments, yet were not subject to the same transparency laws. And to this day, according to the HUPD website, Harvard police officers, quote, are sworn special state police officers with deputy sheriff powers, and they have, quote, the authority to enforce state and local laws and university policies. Yet this concern over lack of transparency more than 15 years after Ahmed did his investigation continues. And, and it was it was this sort of strange situation, which I think a lot of people at that time did not appreciate that you had um, you had individuals employed by a private institution that had significant powers of the state and significant police law enforcement powers of the state. And that to us, that made a really clear legal argument that 
given that they've been granted these powers by these public agencies, they should be accountable to the same checks and balances as those public agencies. The case dragged on. Crimson lost in several rounds of litigation. The students who originally filed the suit graduated, and two and a half years later in 2006, the case was finally resolved when the Massachusetts State Superior Court ruled in Harvard's favor. It seems that students have been butting heads with HEPD for a long time. And meanwhile, HEPD has tried to change, mostly by way of reform. Being on the modern front of reform, with mixed results, was the third theme in HEPD history that Joan pointed out. I think also just seeing over and over again how Harvard kind of actually was in many cases at the front end of the curve and sort of the different efforts at, at police reform that we've seen in the past. So Harvard was really at the cutting edge for introducing sort of computerized policing and trying to use technology um, for surveillance and, and data about things like arrests and incident reports to sort of redistribute their officers and, and target quote-unquote high-crime areas and, and sort of turn policing into more of a, of a science. That obviously didn't work in terms of addressing the problems that we're concerned about. Then uh, Harvard was also at the forefront of trying to implement community policing as well. And again, like more recently, Harvard tried to do, you know, diversity and equity initiatives with the police department that also haven't solved the problem. So I think over and over again, we've seen these efforts at reform that have fallen, fallen completely flat. And I think that's, that just underscores for us another reason why abolition is, is just so necessary. In 1973, HEPD created the Security Student Patrol, where students would police the community. In the same year, they put $2 million towards security, including developing CCTV, and in 74, they created a crime task force of plainclothes officers. These reforms didn't really work. In 1974, Harvard spent over $1 million on security, but saw losses to theft grow 46%. Harvard Police Department has, has explicitly tried this before. It was one of the promises of the former police chief Riley. The police chief before him was a black man, police chief Johnson, and his tenure was characterized by just repeated incidents of racial discrimination by Huffy and criticism from, from black student organizations, you know, throughout his tenure in the 1980s and 1990s. So that obviously hasn't been successful in the past. And Riley was brought in in 1995 to improve relations between police and the Harvard community championing a community policing model, diversity trainings, diverse hiring practices, and the like. Yet throughout his tenure, and especially in the past few years, we've seen numerous incidents of what many call racist and anti-poor policing, as we've described over the past few episodes. Yeah, I mean, that incident with the Black Men's Forum in 2007 triggered its own series of responses from university administration. Brian Barnhill organized the I Am Harvard campaign afterward, to bring attention to anti-Black racism at this institution, which included a protest before Primal Scream that year. So, we wanted to um, utilize this as a moment to make a statement that the Harvard student population is diverse, and we're just as much a part of this institution as you are. And uh, that was the whole spirit behind the I Am Harvard campaign. I feel like the community appreciated uh, what we did. Uh, president Drew Fouts was the president at that time. In response, she agreed to form a campus climate committee uh, to address these issues. So of course, Fouts formed a committee. And in addition to that, a huge review of the HEPD was convened in 2008, which released a 100-plus page report in 2009. 
better view found many of the same problems as reviews of the HUPD from 2018 after Yardfest or 2020 most recently. Lack of transparency, distrust of police, racist incidents, and so on. But the tone of this 2009 report is all about community policing, noting, quote, how much common ground there is between the HUPD officers and other members of the Harvard community, end quote. And those recommendations in the report are basically ways to integrate HUPD with Harvard better and create good relations with students. In response to the 2009 report, Harvard created a safety advisory committee to consider how to better integrate HUPD into Harvard's campus. I think we see a few things with this 2009 review. Response to controversy with the review, and the review consisting of reformist approaches to policing, of integrating HUPD and creating mutual understanding instead of tackling structural problems to racism in policing, which is both reflective of the history of reforming the Harvard police that we just went over and harkens back to our third episode when we saw how Harvard for 40 years has elected to take an integrationist model to racism and diversity, encouraging interactions and cultural understanding over really tackling structural issues. All these reforms and reviews of HUPD remind me also of all the reviews and changes we've seen to diversity more broadly. From the first one, the 1980 study of race relations, to the enormous presidential task force on inclusion and belonging, and they all seem to forget their past iterations, or at least be uncannily repetitive. It's striking how many of the short-term recommendations in the 2020 report by 21CP are similar to recommendations in the 2018 report of the HUPD issued after Yardfest, which we discussed in episode one. Consider medically trained responders, transparency, rethink HUPD relationships to surrounding police, be attuned to needs of students of color. So to hack this history and pattern of HUPD reform, whether it is technological or through representation, is untenable. They see abolition as the only answer because of the historical failure of reform within HUPD. As Brooks put it, What we need is whole-scale, systemic, foundational, radical, as in at the root, transformation of policing in the American context. So we return to today's conflict over the future of HUPD. Although our present is caught up, it seems, in the endless cycles and reverberations of the past. A lot of the trends in these past reforms to the HUPD, like diverse hiring, diversity training, community policing models, and so on, all of which have failed to stop recurring feelings of unsafety and troubling incidents of racist and anti-poor policing for decades at Harvard, track closely, if not in timeline, then in terms of implementation and falling short to attempts nationwide over decades to end violent and racist policing. There are so many reasons that Cornell Brooks has told us that police reform failed. Some of it has to do with the focus on performing policing broadly without addressing racism particularly. Mass incarceration is literally the fruit, literally the manifestation of systemic racism on the back end, and destructive policing is the manifestation of systemic racism on the front end. Studying the problem can lead to what Martin Luther King called the paralysis of analysis, or police taking responsibility for that which they are manifestly unqualified to do. You study the problem and the study leads to a call for more resources, more tools. It seems like a lot of those apply to Harvard, and a lot of them have to do with the Harvard Diversity Review. A focus on policing without focusing on racism 
is similar to how 21CP Solutions focused on the entire Harvard community and weighted everyone's opinion equally, which doesn't center how policing disproportionately impacts black and brown students, those perceived as poor, transgender people, and so on. Or how the 2018 Presidential Task Force on Inclusion and Belonging equates racial and class diversity to diversity of political ideology. Or how the 2018 Yardfest report focused as much on changing Yardfest, a music festival, as changing the policies of the Harvard police. And looking at this long history of HUPD, it's full of instances of reforming police consisting of more money, new computer systems, hiring more diverse officers, diversity training, which are all things 21CP recommends and their pillar two of short-term solutions. I don't see them turning out differently. Ironically, it was a bicycle patrol, which HUPD Chief Riley implemented as a measure to improve community relations in the 90s, that was cited at the BLM rally in Franklin Park last June. And then this notion Brooks raised of the paralysis of analysis. I mean, that could be the title of any of our episodes. It seems to be what diversity reviews at Harvard especially do, study and delay. Not necessarily with bad intent, but there's this confluence of factors. Harvard is huge and decentralized. Harvard is old and slow moving. Harvard is insulated from competitive incentives to make big changes on diversity fronts, unlike a corporation. And some perceive Harvard as wanting to protect its status as super elite. Harvard is born of slavery and hierarchy. Harvard is full of academics who think studying is important. And there's so much more we've gone over. So the Harvard Diversity Review seems especially predisposed to this paralysis of analysis. The question becomes, how do you force a review to turn into action? especially at an institution where the people often agitating the most for change, students, grow exhausted and inevitably graduate on a four-year cycle. These efforts to study the problem can be a way of running down the clock, meaning we suck out all the anger, the outrage, the energy from protests. We direct it into a commission, a task force, a study or report, And a year or two later, the outrage, the anger is gone, but it has not been replaced by substantive reform or transformation. Joan said something similar. It's almost like waiting out activist approach. Um, And I think that's part of why, you know, like, (laughs) we wanted to go ahead with this report. We don't think that we need this 21CP external review to know what the problems with Humpty are. We don't think we need, like, another community task force to determine what the role of HUPD is in terms of community safety, you know? Um, And even aside from, like, this information already exists, right? First of all, we're writing this report about what student problems are, what student problems have been for decades with HUPD. It's the same complaints, it's the same issues. It's just being raised now in a more urgent way um, because of our content, our like current political context, and you know the fact that we've kind of come together as or- organizers or, or whatever. But these these have been coming up over and over and over again. These problems for decades is part of what we found. So there's not really a need to get that information together. And if and, and if this is about you know how to devise community solutions and community alternatives, there are experts who already have knowledge and expertise in those areas. Um, there's you know, a whole wealth of information about transformative and restorative justice practices. If we think back to our third episode on the Presidential Task Force on Inclusion and Belonging, when we talked to experts on diversity and DNI reviews in higher education and corporations like Daryl Smith and Francis Frey, 
They said reviews are important if we can hold leadership at all levels accountable for making real change based on the report. Bond, the 21CP reviewer, said basically the same thing. But from Hilda to the students in Donald Barfield's task force in the 1980s, to Amit Paley before us at the Crimson, to ITUM Harvard to hack, how do we do that? If students respond to crisis with protest, and Harvard responds to protest with a report, and the report slows things down, it's almost by definition too late to get angry again at the report's outcomes or to hold anyone accountable to the report's recommendations. Studies and reports can sometimes delegitimize both the claims of injustice and those who make the claims. Meaning, when we say this problem is a matter of both sides, this is a problem in which we all have a stake and responsibility, which is most often true, but that we have an equal share of culpability, which is often not true. Right, like it's kind of ridiculous to suggest that the very people hurt by racist policing have equal responsibility when reform efforts fall short. No, it's the very institution that perpetuates that violence in the first place that is largely culpable for the solution's failure, or for failing to even try to fix the problem. So what do we do about that? When we look at Harvard in the context of this national pattern, we have to ask ourselves, not is a task force report and audit wrong per se, but has it been set up and created to bring about the right, to bring about the good? And one of the ways we can ask that question is not, is there gonna be accountability at the end of this commissioner task force? We have to ask, this, ask the question, is there accountability as we're doing the study, conducting the um, task force or the commission? So in other words, does, is the task force or commission charged with delivering a set of recommendations during a certain timetable? Is, are those recommendations tied to um, incentives, but also accountability measures? Is the task force synced and timed in such a way that the community is not worn out when you come to an end? So for example, let's say freshmen, not freshmen, first years at, at Harvard College call for the creation of a task force. And the task force takes four and a half to five years to deliver a report. By definition, the people who call for the task force or the commission have graduated and are no longer around to hold those who authored the task force and populated the commission responsible and accountable. If the audience for the report is merely the people who are source of the problem, that's a problem. In part, it almost sounds like we're too late with this podcast, that we've questioned and investigated all these diversity and performance reviews after the fact. But this work needs to happen beforehand. Someone should have been publicly, loudly, asking 21CP what community meant back in June when they were hired. Not now. But people definitely were asking. Like Brooks said, culpability is not equal here in the failure to turn reviews into action. We see again and again and again it being impossible to hold either the process or the products of the Harvard Diversity Review accountable. Only one of 15 professors we contacted on the Presidential Task Force of Inclusion and Belonging was open to an interview and only seven undergraduates were included on that task force, period. Nobody agreed to interviews about the Yardfest report, 
There is no on-the-record comment from the university on the Pulse survey or the presidential task force. No comment about criticisms of the HUPD. Nothing on the advisory committees being formed to implement 21CP solutions, except for the opaque and cosmetic Gazette interviews with Harvard administrators. Sometimes we'd ask people who let a review to comment. The reviewers would refer us to Harvard Public Affairs and Communications, and then Harvard Public Affairs and Communications would refer us right back to the individual reviewers. All right, but maybe there's an opportunity to make this time, this specific moment of reckoning with policing at Harvard, different. I mean, 21CP Solutions has outlined a thorough review process and included mechanisms in it for the review to be transparent and accountable throughout. That seems promising, not unlike what Brooks described, not unlike what Smith described in episode three. A diversity review, to be effective, must change the central ways and structures of a university instead of being secondary priorities. It must engage the entire university, and it must be aligned across leadership. And to that end, Harvard is working on making a facilitating committee to lead that reimagining public safety process that 21CP recommends in Pillar 1. This is a chance for the university to take racism and policing seriously, and more importantly, a chance for students to hold the review accountable as it happens, instead of just afterward. But I'm hesitant to be optimistic. For starters, Harvard originally said that the facilitating committee would start on April 30th but they now said it will get underway in the fall. So more delay, more time to wait out students, more energy students have to expend to make sure this reimagining happens at all. When Brooks said the task force needs to be made such that the community is not worn out at the end, that really stood out. We have been worn out. Every generation of students has been worn out. From Florence Hoon in 1980. For me to say something 40 years old that is resonant today shows you the amount of progress that has been made. Because, you know, I was very, when that report came out, I knew I was ready to leave Harvard and I did not want to improve the lives of people at Harvard. That was not a goal in life because it was not going to achieve anything concrete. To Hilda Jordan in 2018. What is my ability to follow up? on these things when it's not a part of it's not it's not a part of my coursework I'm not getting paid to do this it's emotionally taxing I have to sort of relive and sit through it how are students and activists supposed to engage with these reviews I posed the question to Brooks you also want to avoid standing on the sidelines because when you stand on the sidelines, the process takes place without your input. And those who may be opposed to your advocacy can say, in effect, their complaints aren't legitimate anyway because they don't care to make them. So students, not just at Harvard, but all over the country are really caught in a, in a bind. And, and, and the bind that students are caught in, meaning they need to be supportive, they need to participate in these processes, but they also have to maintain a critical distance in terms of not unwittingly endorsing things that they uh, shouldn't endorse. But the, the impact on the students is even, is even more profound than that. The impact on students in engaging in consultation is not unlike the ways in which communities are called upon to engage in consultation. Meaning, we pay the consultants, we get your input for free. The consultants are doing this at an analytic and critical distance, at an emotional distance, that does not traumatize them. 
does not cause them to be triggered by what they have to recall and recount. When it comes to communities, when it comes to students, they can literally be triggered and traumatized by what they're going through. That's not to say the students or communities are comprised of citizen snowflakes. It's not to say that people aren't uh, resilient and resolute and, and uh, have a sturdiness of character. It is to say this is tough work, right? Like, you know, I've, I've told the story often of being, having recently graduated from Yale Law School, starting, finishing a clerkship, coming to work in Washington, D.C. years ago, and being stopped by the police, having the police ask for my ID, I reach for my eyeglasses, and the officer reaches for his gun. I've had the experience of being profiled many, many times, okay, and being cursed out on more than a few occasions. Now, when I talk about that, I'm my endeavor is to inform and to share and to perhaps enlighten people who want to have a conversation about uh, policing. But when I tell the story, it is not without some kind of psychic cost or emotional tax. It's unpleasant. But, you know, what's true for me as a civil rights lawyer who's been in, been in this business for 25 years, I think is more true for a first year or second year at Harvard College. Like, in other words, when you're mistreated, it can be cathartic to tell that story, but, but it can also be um, taxing emotionally to tell that story. And we got to acknowledge that. So my point being is, when you participate in these processes, you're literally spending emotional capital. You need to spend it. It's important to spend it, but other people shouldn't assume it's free. We've spent so much of this podcast trying to demystify how the university works. But each of the diversity reviews we've looked at arose from the labor of individual students and faculty and staff, from activism and agitation. That labor, not the university's top-down, but that of those on the ground, might be the key. We started this podcast asking, how could an institution with so much history have so little memory? But maybe the better question is, how could an institution with so many resources and people and talent, with such a professed dedication to inquiry and research, pay so little notice? And an institution with so little memory, that seems at times so oblivious, how can, how do, students keep themselves going to make Harvard pay attention. We've spoken again and again about dedicated leaders and individuals, about positive signs in recent years that Harvard administrators are at least thinking about and making baby steps when it comes to race, racism, diversity, and inclusion. But all these mechanisms, the penchant for study and framing of equal culpability and the sprawling bureaucracy and Harvard's overlapping research, financial, and public image incentives, and Harvard's integrationist approach and the pervasive opacity and student activist graduation timelines and their subsequent exhaustion, how much good can goodwill really do? Reviews arise from events, student voices and national context and dedicated people trying to make change to the university. Those people's voices are eventually washed away or exhausted or waited out or superseded or delegitimized. And the review quickly follows, resigned to the archive for us to dig up years later and subject to yet another review. Under Review is a podcast brought to you from 15 Minutes, the Harvard Crimson's weekly magazine, and hosted by Olivia Oldham and me, Mateo Wong. Our producers are the amazing Zing Ji, 
Thomas Massenew, Lara Dada, Justin Yee, and Jason Lamb who produced this final episode. We are so thankful to Ian Chan for being game to join this project and compose original music, and to Mir and Air for the beautiful cover art. Huge thank you to Jamie Bacallis, the Crimson's managing editor, for wisdom and editing throughout. And along the way, we've had so much support from Benadaf Haffrey, Marcus Montague Mfuni, Rebecca Kadenhead, Josie Abugov, and everyone else at the Crimson and at FM.